The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Douglas Murray on why he thinks the coronavirus is over, Nairola Emila on her family's experiences as Uyghurs living under the rule of the CCP, and Theo Hobson on why the different factions of the Church of England need to come together. First up, Douglas Murray. The time has come to get on with our lives. If anyone had any doubts about the wisdom of tempting fate, then they probably haven't considered the case of Betty White and People magazine. Assuming that some spectator readers are not also subscribers to People, I should inform you that the cover for the current issue features the last of the Golden Girls. Betty White turns 100, sings the headline, with the subtitle Funny never gets old. But while funny may not get old, the issue soon did. White died a few days shy of her 100th birthday, just as People magazine hit the newsstands. It sits there still, the worst example of a cover tempting fate since November 2016, when Newsweek brought out an issue with Hillary Clinton on the front under the headline Madam President. All of which is simply to say that I am fully aware of how careful we should be. Yet, here I go. I think that the coronavirus is over. Or at least it will become clear in the next few weeks that it is over. That is not to say that no one will get Covid or any of its variants, or that insane rules will not continue to be applied largely by Celts in this country. But it is to say that it will be harder and harder to apply any such rules, let alone enforce them, and that as the first weeks of 2022 roll on, people will increasingly realise that we are done with all this. The reasons are obvious. Firstly, the current fixation with lockdowns and similar restrictions is unsustainable. Children cannot continue to be kept away from school, workers cannot permanently be kept away from their offices, entertainment of all kinds cannot keep stop starting. Life, in all of its forms, must simply be allowed to go on. A second reason is that, of course, it is by now abundantly clear that the Omicron variant is the easiest variant to date, both to catch and to recover from. Almost everybody seems to have had it, and for most of us it was no worse than a bit of a sniffle. This couldn't be said of all the earlier variants, but it can be said with some certainty about this one. Some of us had a runny nose, others had a sore throat, but few of us saw the tunnel, the lights, or our lives flashing before us. If ever there were a variant to live with, It is this one. 
Yet still some people want to resist this, continuing, among other things, to willfully mix up cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. The journalists at the Downing Street press conference will probably continue to call for more stringent measures for the rest of the year, and the various authorities in our country will continue to invent new ways to look ridiculous. For example, as I write, the idiotic Labour government in the stupidly devolved Wales is still advising the Welsh people not to go into the office or risk being fined. As though they needed much encouragement that way. Yet, while office work is discouraged, the Welsh are allowed to go to the pub, meaning that the only place outside of the home that the Welsh are being encouraged to work from is the pub. Another encouragement they did not need. It is worse in Scotland. Some readers will have seen the pathetic spectacle of policemen and women raiding Hogmanay celebrations and trying to confiscate the locals' drinks. The masked, visibility-jacket-wearing representatives of the Committee on Public Safety were caught on video actually marching half-pissed Scotsmen in full kilt regalia out of a bar. The police even took their bottles of whisky off the table. Why would they do this? In Scotland, at the time of writing, precisely one person is in the ICU with confirmed Omicron. One. In the whole of Scotland. And for this, Nicola Sturgeon orders the police to drag the drinkers out of the bars. I may be a terrible sell-out Sassanac half-breed in the eyes of Sturgeon, but even I can tell you that what happened in Scotland over Hogmanay is more likely than anything any foreign saboteur could conjure up to erode the concept of policing by consent. It is the same around the world. Over in the Netherlands, the government seized the opportunity of Omicron to order their umpteenth national lockdown and curfew. A large demonstration against these measures took place on Sunday and culminated in the Dutch police wielding their batons against the locals and setting police dogs onto them. For their own good. It is a more brutal version of what some Americans are doing to each other. Mask mandates on planes may not be stopping anyone from getting Omicron, cloth masks now being officially declared useless against this variant, but they are certainly setting passengers against each other on domestic flights. One video that did the rounds this week showed a woman so enraged at a maskless man on her plane that she whipped off her own mask to scream at him for being maskless. The exchange did not disrupt Dorothy Parker's reputation as the wittiest woman in American history, but it did culminate in the female passenger spitting at the male passenger. Because if there is one thing that is sure to stop the spread of the virus, it is people on planes spitting like camels at each other for not taking the necessary precautions to prevent particle transmission. My point is that in country after country, it is becoming clear that none of this is sustainable. That does not mean that it will not go on for some while longer, Things that are unsustainable usually do. But it will soon become clear 
that there are societies, states and whole countries that are successfully getting on with life and others that are not. And as people in the countries that want to lock down for the rest of the decade look to those places like Florida, which are successfully getting on with things, they will want their own lives to look like that too. As I say, I know what it is to tempt fate, but that is my view. And R.I.P. Betty White. That was Douglas Murray. Next, it's Nirola Emmela. Being a model Uyghur is hard work. I left China a decade ago when life there as a Uyghur simply became too difficult. People know about ongoing genocide of the Uyghurs, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It followed years of smaller-scale persecution, which I experienced daily. I first grew aware of how bad things were in 2009, when I got a job in an inland city that required me to travel, a role that became impossible because hotels would refuse to let me stay. Receptionists would see my identity card, which bore my ethnicity, and curtly reply that there were no rooms available. Once, one smiled kindly and told me to wait in the lobby. Ten minutes later, the police arrived, whereupon she pointed at me and said, That's the Uyghur sitting there. I spent the night at the police station on a bench. Uyghurs are a liability for employees and landlords. My were summoned to police station to report on me on a weekly basis, and eventually I was asked to leave. At this point, my parents said to me, We want you to leave when there is still a slight chance. That's why I made a decision to go to Sweden on a student visa and thereafter adopt the Swedish citizenship. Yet my story pales in comparison to what my family, left behind in our homeland, have had to endure. By 2017, it became difficult to find information about them. I called my mother repeatedly, but every time I tried to raise the possibility of going home for a visit, she became invasive or silent. Eventually, on a video call, she held up a piece of paper on which was written, Do not come back. In October that year, she was told by the cadres, the public officials, to delete me from WeChat, the Chinese version of WhatsApp. She obeyed for fear of being sent to a camp. During the following months, she only sent me the occasional secret message. We are safe, don't worry. But we were both extremely careful. It was nearly a year before we were in regular contact again. My mother is resilient. She was in one of the groups exiled to the countryside by Mao during the Cultural Revolution. After his death, she returned to her hometown, Hulja, and was assigned to thermal power plant. In 1999, she was ordered to report workers whose wives were pregnant to ensure that ethnic minority employees didn't exceed the state-mandated birth limit. She refused and her superior demoted her to cleaning duty, a role that held until retirement. Working conditions were rough. She never received safety equipment, and some nights coughed so violently she couldn't breathe. 
Years later, I asked her why she didn't cooperate. She told me, You, my only child, are my heart and my life. Those children who have not yet come into this world mean the same to their parents. I cannot be part of killing them. Sometimes, however, my mother has had no choice but to yield to the Chinese Communist Party. My mother loves to sing. She has won regional singing competition for energy workers, and she can also be very vivacious and charismatic. The local propaganda department took a liking to her, and whenever they required it, she became their model Uyghur worker. She gave speeches on the United of Xinjiang ethnic groups and sang songs about the debt she and our people owed to the party. Three and a half years ago, thanks to the effort of the free media highlighting the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs, the world started to notice and the international outcry grew louder. The Chinese government worked frantically to deny the allegations. Every broadcaster, from the local news outlet to the international Chinese cable channel CGTN, showed clips of Uyghurs merely dancing and singing praise of the CCP. And so my mother was once more in demand. On International Women's Day in 2018, the CCP propaganda department in the city of Ulja held a ceremony in my cousin Myla's house. Journalists, street callers, A neighbor streamed into her living room to sing, dance, and play games in front of state media camera crew. My mother, surrounded by officials, convincingly smiled at the cameras as she sang off her love for the party and Xi Jinping. She was photographed exchanging gifts with a CCP official, and she proclaimed her gratitude for the party lenient treatment of her people in dealing with. What the state calls the three evil forces: terrorism, separatism, and religious extremism. My cousin Maila was not there, though. Five days earlier, she had been taken to a re-education camp, accused of harboring the three evil forces. During the ceremony, Maila's children sat quietly in the bedroom, away from the glare of cameras. They were at school when she, their sole parents, was taken. My mother warned them against revealing their true thoughts to others, because the CCP may interpret any grievances as a sign of terroristic inclinations. They have wept for their mother in secret. Myla's captivity began with an extrajudicial indoctrination camp to extract the evil forces, before. She was moved to a pre-trial detention center, and then finally to prison. The CCP sentenced her for contacting her parents in Australia and sending money to help them buy a house. Since Myla's capture, my parents have also been under house arrest. The prosecutor accused them of illegal owning extremist items. This referred to sixty-six photographs they took with Maila while they traveled together to Malaysia in two thousand fifteen. It's not easy work being a model Uyghur worker. On first July last year, the CCP anniversary, I spent hours trying to reach to my mother, but there was no answer. Later that evening, I learned that she had been busy lending, core singing red songs under the scorching sun for six hours. 
When I looked online at the state media, I saw government's representatives sitting in the first row and an entire audience, no doubt threatened into attendance, waving national flags like a fence at a rock concert. In the evening, once my mother had returned home, we had a short, illicit video call, but she was so exhausted that she was unable to utter a single sentence. We sat in silence until eventually she hung up. She was due to sing again the next day. My family stories is just one example of the appalling situation China's 11.62 million Uyghurs face today. It's more than discrimination. It is a systematic, calculated program designed to destroy the Uyghur community, people, and our culture. And it's my firm belief that it's a month to genocide. As we entered a new year, it is time the world stands up and listens. That was Nairola Emela. And finally, Theo Hobson. Divided we stand. Anglicans need to agree to disagree. Two years ago, the Church of England decided to delay any public discussion of its deepest division over homosexuality until 2022. So this might be the year in which an already troubled institution has a dramatic public meltdown. Or it might be the year in which the Church of England sorts itself out a bit. Yes, really, stranger miracles have happened. There are grounds for hope, and not just on the gay issue. The Church has a core strength that it could draw on, and a core identity that could stand it in good stead, though one it is weirdly shy to assert. First, let's admit that things haven't been going so well, even while the gay issue has been kicked into the long grass. The pandemic has obviously been a nightmare for church attendance and finances, but it also deepened a dangerous ideological rift. It emboldened those who want to experiment with more flexible structures, which alarmed those who don't, and who fear the demise of the parish. This rift is dangerous because it strongly overlaps with the old rift between evangelicals and Anglo-Catholics. At the same time, the church got drawn into the culture wars, with knee-taking progressive bishops irritating a large section of the faithful. The former bishop, Michael Nazir Ali, was irritated all the way to Rome. It might sound like crazy optimism, but challenging times can clarify minds and prod an awkward, uncertain tradition into life. I refer not to the church in general, which has pockets of passionate conviction, but to the core Anglican tradition of liberal Anglo-Catholicism. It is liberal in the sense that it affirms the liberal state and rejects a reactionary response to modern culture. It is Anglo-Catholic in the sense that it has confidence in ritual tradition and is wary of simplistic emotional piety and bossy legalism. It prefers mystery, difficulty, open-mindedness. This is, in my humble opinion, the best Christian tradition, and in fact the best tradition in all of human culture. So why does it have all the self-confidence of a pimply teenager? Some readers will be surprised that some feel the church lacks liberal confidence. Isn't it full of trendy bishops trying to jump on woke bandwagons and modernise everything? Well, yes, there is a BBC-ish culture of political correctness, especially in the central leadership. 
but that's not true liberalism. That's just another form of tyranny. The church could and should champion its own truly liberal identity. It only nervily apes secular trends because it has lost touch with its own tradition. Consider the above-mentioned former bishop, Dr Michael Nazirali. In an interview he gave to this magazine, he spoke of his early life in Pakistan and named one of the key differences between Islam and Christianity. The former religion is legalistic, he said. It puts rules in the way of the believer's relationship with God. His use of this contentious term struck me as a bit rich, quite frankly, in the context of his move from Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism. Legalism is the belief that religion entails a law or firm rules about morality and ritual culture. Compared with other monotheisms, Christianity is relatively critical of this aspect of religion. You could even say that it separates religion and moral rules, arguing that God chooses not to be built into a particular moral system. He prefers to associate himself with an ideal of perfection. It is within Protestantism, and particularly liberal Protestantism, that this post-legalism has been most fully attempted. This was a major ingredient of the modern liberal state. Politics became secularised as religious rules loosened. The Church of England partially and awkwardly signed up to this. It is joined at the hip to liberal culture. Yes, this makes it easy to criticise, but this is its special calling. So the Church of England should regain some pride in its positive affinity with cultural freedom. Admittedly, this will not in itself get agnostics back in the pews. Secular liberals obviously don't think they need any lessons on cultural freedom. But it is a crucial part of Anglican identity, and only a church that has confidence in its core identity can attract people. When the church's liberal Anglo-Catholic core finally rouses itself into life, its task is threefold. First, it must simply assert its centrality in the church. This means speaking up for the Anglican version of liberalism and defying the fashionable post-liberalism that has over-impressed a generation or two of Anglican intellectuals, from Rowan Williams to Giles Fraser. It's time for a nuanced approach in which aspects of liberalism are criticised, but in which the basic Anglican affirmation of the liberal state is renewed. Asserting its centrality in the church also means treating evangelicalism with a bit less respect. For decades, it has unbalanced the church by drawing relatively big and affluent crowds with a style that grates on most Anglican sensibilities. Its simplistic idea of mission has dominated all recent attempts at innovation, which have been heavily backed by the archbishops, leading to discontent in the parishes. A case in point is the newish Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell. Though he comes from the Anglo-Catholic side of the church, his promotion led him to an uncritical embrace of the evangelical model of mission, with its grim middle-management diagrams and cheery, facile slogans. Evangelicalism remains ebullient as ever, but thankfully its reputation for trend-bucking success is now fading, a recent report showed that its latest church-planting efforts were largely fruitless. This makes it easier to put it back in its box. 
The second task is to begin to end the dispute over homosexuality. It won't be solved overnight or over year, but the solution is clear enough. Diversity must be allowed. Liberal parishes must be free to conduct gay weddings. Evangelical parishes must be allowed to refuse to. The church allowed such diversity over the ordination of women. There is no reason that this compromise should not be repeated. I have sometimes felt that the church was wrong to tolerate dissent on the ordination of women and let the traditionalists have their separate structures. But it turns out that it was providential because it set a precedent that can now be belatedly followed on an even more divisive issue. Only by embarking on this admittedly messy course can the church reaffirm its affinity with the moral culture around it. The third task is to renew Anglican worshipping culture, both within the parish system and beyond it. Bold innovation is needed, but it must be in tune with the church's core traditions. We need a paradigm shift in which every parish has a dual function, As well as staging weekly worship, it should contribute to wider cultural projects, such as local festivals, collaborating with other churches and other cultural bodies. Every parish should have an extrovert creative wing, an in-house arts centre. The aim is a new Anglican culture of creativity rooted in parishes. It is not an easy fate for a church to be joined at the hip to liberalism, It is open to charges that it dilutes Christian orthodoxy and is full of moral muddle. The former charge must be refuted, but the latter charge cannot be. Our church is full of moral muddle, but that is because you and I are. It reflects us. It is the muddle of honesty. The alternative is a church that issues clear moral rules that most of its adherents do not quite believe in. You might say that a church with a positive view of liberalism is simply too weak to stand. This sounds like a hard-headed analysis, but it's not true. Plenty of us still feel called to keep the experiment going of Christianity plus moral honesty. We trust that God will not allow this form of witness to run into the sand. He might even have grand plans for it. That was Theo Hobson. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week. <laughs>